just a little brief moment to maybe spend a little time shepherding with you for just a second before we get into our text. One of the things that is a hallmark of a believer in Christ, and Darren has alluded to this and we have uh, practiced that here, um, the hallmark of a believer in Christ is that believers sing. It doesn't have anything to do with skill or ability or experience. It simply is a command of the Lord that we sing. And one of the things I, I have encouraged you to do and I would encourage you to do is to own a copy or two, or in our house, we have 10 copies of our hymnal. Because this is, I, I, I've looked through probably 25 different hymnals. This is the greatest hymnal ever compiled in 2,000 years of the church's history. Because it's doctrinally accurate, it's rich. You don't ever get to a song where you go, where did that come from? That's like what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Every hymnal has those, this one doesn't. You can literally sing from cover to cover knowing that you are experiencing and singing the truth of God. So our, our bookstore sells them. We sell them at rock bottom prices. I'm not trying to sell hymnals. I'm trying to get you to, to worship the Lord in your home. So get a hymnal because the only thing better than knowing your Bible is knowing your hymnal. And that is a great way to walk through this life as we move toward our heavenly home. Well, turn with me to Ephesians 6. And officially last week, we finished our Parenting for God's Glory series. So unofficially, I want to take this opportunity to sort of add in a, an appendix, a, a footnote to this. Just to tie up this series kind of in a neat little bow, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. First of all, we talk about parenting for God's glory because our job as parents is to obey the Lord's commands regarding the children that he has, he has loaned to us. But all the results... All the results of our work and diligence and prayer, those are in the hands of our sovereign God. And so we don't make guarantees for our children. Only God can do that. And we've said that talking on specific topics like this, which don't necessarily apply directly to every one of your lives at this moment, it is, however, the word of God. And the word of God is always rich for us. And it is always good for us to know how we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so every topic is for every Christian in, in that regard. But just to remind you of where we've been, we've gone through some major principles and we've just used Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 as our kind of benchmark to go through each of these principles. We looked at the principle of heart motivation. Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. We looked at the principle of respectful submission, Verse 2, honor your father and mother. We looked at the principle of natural outcomes. Second half of verse 2, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We looked at the principle of gracious relationship. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We've looked at the principle of consistent consequences, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. And then last time we looked at the principle of divine truth, but bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. But today I really want to give a, a final plea, not on a general topic, but on a very specific topic, and that is the principle of purity, specifically sexual purity. It is the job of parents to communicate to our children, to our families about sexual purity and to be consistent with what we expose our children to so that our teaching matches the boundaries and the limitations that we set. 
And so to provide the standard, to provide detailed instruction for us, the, the, the beauty of this is, is that we don't have to look any further than the previous page in our Bible. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives a, a detailed plea, a, a pleading, a begging for sexual purity. And so today I want to just kind of tie a little knot at the end of this series, put a little, little period at the end to talk about shepherding your children towards sexual purity. Now, we'll get to the text shortly here, but I want to be fair before we even read it. I should warn you that it's direct and it's to the point. It's harsher than anything I could ever say. It's negative in tone. It's a series of negative imperatives. These aren't the do's and don'ts. These are just the don'ts. And so we need to honor that tone. I'm not going to try to turn it around and and soften what the Apostle Paul is trying to do. If you have ever made the mistake as parents where you, for example, as as a mother set a boundary, you are going to clean your room, you're going to do it right now, and then dad walks in and says, but let's go get ice cream first. It kind of takes all the power out of that statement. So we're not going to take the power out of this. We're going to let it speak for itself. But before we get to the raw, direct commands of the Apostle Paul, I want to start with the bigger picture and put this more in context. What is the goal of human sexuality? Obviously, we continue to propagate humanity, but God created human intimacy with such emotional, such spiritual intensity involved because it's the glue, it is the bond, it's the unique feature of the most intimate of all human relationships, and that is that of marriage. And so the end game, the, all the purposes of human sexual interaction are properly found only in marriage. And this includes every, everything that, that leads up to sexual communion as a couple, the, the flirtation, the suggestiveness, the, the poetic hints, such as the entire book of Song of Solomon gives us an example of that. The, the building of this emotional bond that culminates in a sexual relationship, it's all in the context of marriage. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, recently, Pastor David asked me to address Cornerstone, our youth group, on the subject of dating or courtship. I didn't really worry too much about semantics and terms. But what we did was we looked at some scriptures and we came up with some principles. And just so you know what we shared with the kids, here's what we talked about. That first of all, romantic relationships are meant for one purpose, and that is to move toward marriage. That's the only reason for them. Second principle we came to is if you aren't ready to be married, you aren't ready to go on a date. It's that simple. And so, for example, someday if somebody wants to date your daughter, you simply ask questions like, do you have a job? Do you have a car? Do you have everything you need to be married? Because until that time, you can't take her out. Another principle we came with is that dating toward marriage pleases God because God invented marriage. We also came up with the principle that dating for fun is completely unknown in Scripture. That's, that's an unknown concept in the Bible. We also said that dating for fun puts you in danger of life-altering sin. That things can happen that can literally change you for a lifetime. And then last, we talked about that dating for the purpose of finding personal worth tells you that you need to not be dating and you need to find worth in Christ. And so those are the things that we shared with the kids to put, to put 
all intimacy in the context where it belongs in marriage, that dating is, is pointing ultimately in the direction of sexual union. So dating for any purpose other than aiming toward marriage, all that's doing is playing with fire for selfish purposes. Now, the question is sometimes asked, is dating good or bad? And I like to answer that it's like fire. It's powerful, but it's morally neutral, and it can be used for noble purposes or for selfish purposes. And so that, that's kind of our foundation here that the wonderful gift of sexual union is in the context of marriage. It is a gift. It is a good thing. But because it's so easily abused and so easily misused, the Apostle Paul is going to be very direct. And so how do you shepherd your children towards sexual purity? Let me give you three ways and then we'll go to our text here. Three ways to shepherd your children towards sexual purity. Shepherd their conviction shepherd their conversation, and shepherd their conduct. Their conviction, their conversation, and their conduct. And we'll just kind of take the whole text at, at once here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, just a general statement here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And now we get a contrast that those who aren't doing this need to be warned. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And we'll stop there with verse 15. The first way to shepherd your children, shepherd their conviction. What do we mean by that? Shepherd the way they think. Shepherd their thoughts. Shepherd the way they think about sexual topics. Paul presents this in the negative. Verse three, Paul says that covetousness must not even be named among you. He warns that the covetous person in verse five ultimately if shown to be repentant and of having no sorrow for this line of thinking that he doesn't belong to the kingdom of Christ. He doesn't belong to the kingdom of God. Covetousness, to be covetous, it speaks of greediness. It speaks of selfishness, of wanting something that you can't have or shouldn't have. The previous chapter describes the unbeliever. Look with me at Ephesians four, verse 19, just for a moment. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, it's the same word as covetous, to practice every kind of impurity. It's greed. It's I want what I want because I deserve it. 
The Apostle Peter describes the heart of the person who has an unquenchable sexual appetite. 2 Peter 2, verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Same word as covetous here in Ephesians 5. What is the sin of sexual covetousness? It is wanting someone, wanting some sin that you should not have, wanting something that doesn't belong to you. We, we went through our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in, in the last few months. One of the principles of marriage that we looked at is the principle of mutual belonging, that marriage has a sense of ownership to it. Song of Solomon 6, verse 3, the bride of Solomon says, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. There's mutual ownership. You belong to me, I belong to you. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4 tells us that the wife and husband in the marriage, they have authority over each other's bodies. Why? Because they belong to each other. There is an ownership. And so to violate that, to cultivate Even the thought of wanting another person who's not your spouse is the desire to steal somebody who doesn't belong to you. And ultimately, and and this is hard to even say out loud, but ultimately to covet another man's wife or another woman's husband is a thought of murder. Why is that? Because to have that other person, then the spouse has to be gotten out of the way. And so you find yourself literally fantasizing about the death of another human being so that you can have their spouse. And you say, that's ridiculous. Really, ask Uriah the Hittite. He was murdered by King David so that David could have his wife. And so thoughts of covetousness lead very quickly to thoughts that are murderous. And this is the real battleground. It is our mind. Just giving a list of do's and don'ts, it misses the heart completely because what goes into the mind is what forms the heart. Several times in Song of Solomon, the young girls in this drama are warned. For example, in in chapter 8, verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, what is this talking about? There's an important language nuance here to understand. Do not stir up and do not awaken. It's the same word in Hebrew, yet it's presented twice. Now, why is that? Well, it's the same word, but it's presented in two different verb forms. The first one we might call a, a causation or a causative verb. Don't do something that causes your desires to be prematurely awakened, aroused. And then the second one is passive. It's the idea of suffering the consequences of the first thing you did. So in other words, don't actively do something to prematurely arouse your senses so that you then passively must pay the price, pay the penalty, pay the consequences for a lifetime. The English translation, I think, is outstanding. To awaken something by implication means that it never goes to sleep again. It never goes to sleep again. Now, obviously, sexual desire and ability happen naturally as part of our biological development. That's the way God made us. But it is possible to radically, radically speed up that process by mere exposure to sexual stimuli for boys, in particular visual stimuli. 
It is possible, and I have seen with children that I've counseled who have been horribly, uh, not just, just abused, but even just exposed to sexual stimuli at such a young age, it is possible for them to then become fully sexually functional at ages of five, six, and seven years old. Because that, that switch has been turned on, and once it's turned on, it's on. Children and, and youth They're not built to be able to handle sexually charged thoughts or conversation or visual or emotional stimuli. Once that switch is on, the battle for purity is now engaged and the war is on. And it will not stop. Usually that war happens in secret and usually it happens in defeat. Probably your 13-year-old is not going to come to you and say, I just have sort of discovered that I'm being sexually aware and I'm really, really battling with that. Usually that's not going to happen. Now the obvious fact of visual stimulation is illustrated in Paul's admonition to women in the church. Now this is specifically in the context of gathering together for worship. The Apostle Paul exhorts that, quote, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. It's 1 Timothy 2.9. Now, this, is a, this isn't a rule book for what's okay and what's not. Uh, Paul hasn't wholesale condemned braided hair, gold and pearls. Almost all of you would have to leave if that happened. That they're not inherently evil. What he was referring to were known cultural indicators of trying to attract sensual attention to yourself. In other words, these were indicators in that time period that I'm not just trying to be attractive, I am trying to be alluring. I'm trying to send a message. And so Paul says, be careful with that. He understands that visual stimulation is a real problem. Now, that's not a command, ladies, that somehow looking horrible is godly. That's not what Paul is saying here. And I grew up in that tradition where a young woman got married and to be a godly woman, she looked like a grandmother, like the day after her wedding. And it was horrible. These poor young men get married to these beautiful young ladies and they wake up the morning after their honeymoon going, what happened to you? And where's the makeup? I mean, what happened? But the reason for this was, and I sort of understand this, that if I can be as horribly unattractive as possible, I won't fall into the sin of causing someone else to stumble. And there's some... There's some logic to that, although that's not the the goal that Paul has in mind here. The goal that he has is aiming at not being a visual distraction. Men and women can both be guilty of that, but men will struggle with that in particular. And so we don't want to force men into into a mental battle that they don't have to fight. The mind is not somehow an okay, unseen playground for sexual fantasy. Jesus called us on that when he shocked his listeners in Matthew 5 by telling them that even thinking lustful thoughts about another woman is adulterous. And by the way, by extension for you ladies, thinking lustful or I wish I had a different husband thoughts also is not okay. So as you're shepherding your children's convictions, their sexual thoughts, what to do with them, Let me give you a couple of ideas here. First of all, it's okay as parents to just tell them, this is the rule. This is the rule. The rule is you will not cultivate sexual thoughts toward others. It is not okay to use your mind as an unseen playground. That's not okay. 
They are to think rightly about sexual thoughts as being reserved for the gift of marriage. The the answer is not to present sexuality as inherently negative. It's not. The answer is to present it as truth, that it is something that is reserved for the context of marriage. In the meantime, self-control is the order of the day. And we teach them self-control. For boys, teach them that you know what they want to think about and hold them accountable for this. Don't think that you have the only 17-year-old boy on the planet who has never had a sexual thought. Well, he's my kid. Of course he does, hasn't had one. That's not true. Acknowledge reality and deal with it. And for girls, teach them to be modest. Teach them not to be the cause of others struggling around them. A 12-year-old girl doesn't need to look 25. There's no reason for that on the planet. There's none at all. Listen, the more that children and teens let sexual thoughts run rampant, the more likely I'm going to hear a complaint from a spouse later in life that she feels treated like an object instead of the love of her husband's life. Because in a million years, she could never live up to the years of carefully cultivated fantasies that her husband had been dealing with for years and years. I've heard that more times than I care to remember. So shepherd their convictions. Teach your children, and this goes for all sin issues, that everything starts in the mind. It starts with how you choose to think. Second, shepherd their conversations. Shepherd their conversations. The Apostle Paul lists some sins of the tongue, conversational sins. In verse four, he speaks of filthiness. This is speaking of obscene, specifically sexual talk, dirty talk, words that are meant to shock By the way, this isn't a prohibition of sexual talk among married couples. Um, There should be sexual talk. That's called communication. It's healthy. It's good. But filthiness, this specific sexual talk that's meant to, to cause people around you to think something about you, to think that you're good or think that maybe you're edgy or whatever. He lists foolish talk. The Greek word, we get the word moronic words from it. Foolish talk, it means mindless, automatic sexual joking in any and every situation. And this is particularly pervasive among men, that that everything has some sort of mindless sexual interpretation to it without even thinking. It's moronic. And then crude joking, that is the, the idea of finding the double meaning in everything, finding the sexual overtone to everything, and particularly doing it with all those around you and forcing them into a, an uncomfortable situation. So he says, don't be filthy, don't do foolish talk, don't crude, uh, use crude joking. Now, in the context of marriage, double meanings and, and flirtation can be the means of connecting and enjoying one another. You married couples, you have code words that only the two of you know. And that's good. That's part of our intimacy. It's part of our communion together. But what Paul is talking about, and listen carefully, this is so important, that the one whose constant sexual thoughts have now spilled over into automatic, unthinking Speech in day-to-day conversations, double meanings, they become the unconscious norm in conversation. You know what that means? That means that's just the tip of the iceberg. That means that below the surface, there is a huge, huge problem. So how do you shepherd conversations? When you have talks about sexual subjects, even the, just the biological functions necessary to understand, it always ought to be couched in the right and proper context of marriage. That those two have to go together. 
normalize sexual conversation as a part of marriage, part of understanding marriage. It's not just another topic to tell jokes about, another topic to get a laugh for kicks. And I would say that this is a topic to be talked about with trusted people, with parents, with close believers, not just with anyone. It should be done in a safe environment. I can't speak for you dads, but for me as a dad, to the best of my ability to control this, I'm not gonna let my kids be around other people's kids who can't control their sexual talk. I'm not going to do it. And if that offends somebody, that's too bad. My job is not to shepherd your family. That's your job. My job is to shepherd mine. So the key here is, is that we shepherd the conversations. We don't limit them and say, we're never going to speak of this. That, that presents a wrong picture of human sexuality. But we are going to shepherd conversations. And, you know, if I ask for a show of hands, and I won't, but if I ask for a show of hands, I dare say that most of you would say that sinful conversations with people that did not have your best interest in mind, did not have your holiness in mind, did not have your purity in mind, that those have negatively impacted you and maybe even caused challenges for you. Some of you have to work around people who are constantly filthy, constantly dirty, and you're having to filter through that and work through that. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. So as you're talking to your kids about this, what's a good litmus test for a conversation that's useful and not harmful? This is simple. You tell your kids, is this conversation honoring to God? Is this honoring to him? If a man has sexual thoughts and flirtatious actions toward a woman, there's a very simple question. Is she his wife? And that answers the whole issue. If sexual conversation is happening with young people, the simple question is, is this leading to godliness? Is this leading to holiness? The Bible addresses sexual topics in very, very direct terms, but when it comes to detail, it directs it toward more poetic, indirect terms. If you read the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is a a work of poetic genius, Because you can read the Song of Solomon as an eight-year-old and you see talk about flowers and perfumes and oils and you think, what is this, some sort of mall store or something that they're going into? Oh, look, they're, they're, they're happy walking through the woods together. And then you get closer to adulthood and you begin, your eyes begin to get opened and say, oh, that's not what they're talking about. There are other things here. It's subtle. It's indirect. Song of Solomon is, is harmless. It's beautiful until you begin to interpret it in the context of marriage and then you get that detail. If sexual conversation is happening, is it leading to godliness? I know a pastor who preached through to all of the seventh and eighth graders in his church. It was a large church. He preached through the Song of Solomon and he maintained the poetic balance, the poetic beauty of that book, never went into any detail And for years after that, when these kids would grow up and get married and begin to understand what they had been taught, they would write him letters and emails thanking him for laying that foundation for them without ever going into detail. It was beautiful, beautifully designed. Listen, just the stimulus of sexual conversation can cause temptation. You have to know your kids. You don't have to tell them everything there is to know before they're 10 years old. That's not necessary. How about this? Take a hand grenade, pull the pin, hand it to them and say, now hang on to that for 15 years. Don't drop it. Because when you give them information too soon, that's what you're doing. Now, that leads us to a cultural issue. 
maybe you have decided not to pull that pin on the grenade and hand it to your kids, but maybe a whole bunch of other people have already handed it to them. And your kids might be in an environment where they're exposed to sexual stimulation and conversation. Some have rightly, I think, called this a teen subculture where a teenager now becomes forced to live in two different worlds, the world of his parents and the world that he really likes. And now there's a choice that has to be made. It's your job to guard them, to determine if they have the courage and the faith and the ability and the fortitude to stand up for themselves and to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to participate in that conversation. I don't know many kids who have that kind of fortitude. So it is your job to guard that and to shepherd them. What do we do instead of foolish talk? Verse four, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Teach them to speak words of thanksgiving. What does that mean? This is so practical. This is so very practical. This is the idea of replacing the habit of sexual conversation with the habit of looking at all of your life and thanking the Lord for every little thing that he is doing, that he is blessing in your life. And the beauty of this is, is you cannot do both at once. You can either be filthy and dirty or you can be thankful. And so the Apostle Paul's cure is be thankful. And for us as parents, teach our children to be thankful. So we shepherd their conversations. Well, finally, let's shepherd their conduct. Let's shepherd their conduct. And I think that we can become a little bit legalistic and just start here. And we can just tell our kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But if we miss the heart, if we miss the, the convictions and we miss the conversation, then we, we really miss the foundation. Shepherding the conduct is not the first step, it's the third step. Verse three, Paul speaks of sexual immorality. He speaks of all impurity. What is this? This is very simply all sexual conduct and contact that the Bible forbids. The human sexuality is not a gift to be used carte blanche as a totally free and unencumbered action. It's a gift from God to be the glue that joins a man and a woman together emotionally, spiritually, in the context of a lifelong exclusive relationship. Now we could spend a lot of time making a list of sexual sins that the Bible prohibits. We could talk about voyeurism, that's looking at someone's body just for pleasure. Uh, Genesis 9 prohibits that. We can talk about homosexuality, incest, adultery, prostitution, rape, premarital sex, many others. But the easiest thing to say is, is this an appropriate action in the context of a committed marital relationship? If it's not, then it's not okay. Don't play with fire. As a matter of fact, the discussion and shepherding concerning sexual issues actually now becomes, and we see this in our passage, a terrific lead-in to a gospel conversation. What does Paul say about the one who is habitually and unrepentantly sexually impure? Verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, by the way, idolater of self, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And it's these very perversions that brought judgment on the world. In Noah's time, every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men were evil, clearly including sexual perversion, and this brought the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, this brought judgment to them. In fact, it's where we get the disgusting word sodomy, is from that judgment. The Apostle Paul 
confirms this in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What are the empty words? The empty words are, oh, Human sexuality is normal, it's natural. It should just, you should just express yourself however you want. We should just to get to enjoy it. We're covered by the blood of Jesus. Those are empty, wrong, heretical words that lead you down a path that can destroy your life. And so the Apostle Paul pleads, he says, don't be like them. That, that was your unsaved self. Verse seven, therefore do not become partners with them. In other words, You've, you've claimed to know Christ. You've been baptized publicly. You have, you have publicly proclaimed his name and now you're acting just like your old self, your, your old friends. It's like saying, I'm leaving the bar where I went to see all of my old sinful buddies, but now I've come, I proclaim Christ and I'm being baptized and I'm in the church. Oh, look at the time. Time to go back to my old friends. Time to do what they used to do because now I'm covered. I, I got my fire insurance. I've been baptized. I've been saved. And Paul says, how horrible is that? What an affront. In verse eight, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says, why would you do this? Why would you go back? So what is Okay. Well, very simply, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What is pleasing to him? What should our attitude be towards sexual sin? Not only are we to not participate in it, but we're to call it out. We're to do what we're doing right now at this moment. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And some things are so disgusting and so filthy that talking about it in detail is pointless. Verse 12, it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. You don't need to teach your kids all of the disgusting things that human beings can do to abuse human sexuality. Just teach them what is appropriate in the context of marriage. But here's where the gospel conversation with your children really comes into play. And it might go something like this. Little Johnny, are are you a Christian? Yes, Dad, I'm a Christian. I, I, I claim to follow Christ. But I know this, son, that you, you continue not being repentant of sexual conversations and you continue to like to hang around the friends who are disgusting and filthy and you continue to enjoy those things. You continue to not work at filtering what comes into your eyes, what comes into your ears, what comes into your mind. It, these, these things are, are concerning to me. Could it be an indicator of the true state of your heart? And Paul says this in verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul cites several Old Testament sources kind of here in one composite, compact nutshell to say, expose your sin to the light of Christ and see if your soul stands the scrutiny. See if you're spiritually dead and in need of forgiveness. Parents, shepherd your children toward pure conduct. Teach your boys to treat girls with respect and dignity, not as potential conquests, to treat every girl as if she is his best friend's future wife. Did you hear that? Teach your boys to treat girls as if everyone is his best friend's future wife. Teach girls to be discreet, 
teach them to shatter the hopes of every boy in the 10-mile radius until that boy has a job, a future, 15 written references, the purity of an angel, a commitment to following Christ, a fierce protective love of the purity of his potential wife, and a car that runs just on top of everything else. Teach your girls to play hard to get because they get one shot at this. They get one shot. And so that that guy needs to be about one inch below Jesus Christ himself. (laughs) Is he ready to be married? Maybe I'll let you on my property. But boys, same thing. You teach your boys that girls are not conquest. They are not your personal Disneyland to look at because that will ruin your mind and it will bring you to a point where you have a wife that can never please you because you've had every woman on earth trying to please you and that wasn't enough. She's not going to be able to fulfill that. Why put young people in a position in which they're forced to resist temptation simply because adults naively think that it's not an issue? Why? Because, oh, it's my kid. He's never talked about it. Listen, just because your children still like video games and baseball doesn't mean that they're at times not saturated by sexual stimuli and temptation and thoughts. And if I could just make this challenge, parents, if you don't guard their minds and their thinking, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Make decisions for your family that creates a protected atmosphere. Children do not need continual access to media and to phones and to iPads. They don't need that. They're tools to be used, not drugs to be taken. And someone might say, well, isn't that sheltering your children? And I would say, absolutely. But what about their friends? Yeah, let's get a bunch of 13-year-olds together and see if they come up with a righteous way of living before God. That's not going to happen. Well, I don't want to be too protective of my children, someone might say. Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance. Proverbs twenty two fifteen folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Proverbs, Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. In other words, there's a responsibility to them. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Psalm 119, 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. In other words, the psalmist tells God, would you shelter me? Turn my eyes away. And we are to shelter our children and turn their eyes away. And stop them from seeing and hearing and doing and thinking the things that will harm them. Yes, there is a day when we say the decision is now yours. And we pray that what we have trained them to do will continue on. But at that point, it's their call, not yours. But until that point, you shelter them. You guard them. There is a true beauty in a young lady and a young man getting married naively and finding surprises on their honeymoon that they didn't know about and that is so rare today you know in premarital counseling now the big issue now in the church of Jesus Christ in America almost every single time is how do we deal with sexual sin that is dragging its ugly baggage into our marriage it is so rare for a young man and a young woman to get married in complete naivete as it ought to be. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality. I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we read this earlier from Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Listen, I spent a good chunk of my life working with children who were so horribly exposed to sexual stimuli that I've had 10, 11, and 12-year-olds bawling in my office saying, I can't get these things out of my mind. Because once they're there, they're there. Now, the protection that you give them, it won't save them. It won't give them spiritual salvation, but neither do we just give up and let your children and teens do and listen and watch whatever they want. Because listen, they will become like that which they worship. They will become that person. In ancient Israel, they didn't have pornography, they didn't have pictures, they didn't have magazines, they didn't have electronic media. External stimulation was almost non-existent. You would think, wow, what a safe environment to live in. But it's all a matter of the heart. Because listen to what happened to them because of their unrestrained sexual sin. The people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, And thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Listen, sexual sin causes pain and anguish and destruction, not just in the one committing the sin, but in the lives of everybody around them. So this is important. This is important. So as a parent, what do I do to shepherd the heart of my children? Yes, this includes giving strong and open condemnation of sexual sin all the warnings given by Paul. But if I could just say this, if the book of Ephesians ended in verse 15, it would be kind of, chapter 5, verse 15, it'd be kind of discouraging. But the rest of Ephesians gives the answer, how to shepherd the heart of my children. It's very practical, it's very beneficial. Here's a list of ways to shepherd your children to distract them from sexual sin. That's just the rest of Ephesians. First, Insist that they manage their time well. Insist that your children manage their time well. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And if we could put a little asterisk, because your little heart is evil. The old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop, holds true. So insist that they manage their time well. Here's a second way to shepherd your children, distract them from sexual sin. Be a family ordered around the church. Be ordered around the church. In verse 18, we see, do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And how does that manifest itself? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the life in the church. Listen, Every moment you're in church is a safer time for, their, for your children. 
Their hearts are being filled with the word of God. You're saturating them in Christ and in his people. The church is a natural barrier to sin. And so if you as a parent are withdrawn and you say, I I don't really want to get that involved in church, well, you're doing your children a disservice. I mean, your kids ought to learn reading, writing, arithmetic, learn about Jesus and fall into bed asleep. That should be their life. And hopefully you get them safely to their marriage. Here's a third way to shepherd your children to distract them. Honor marriage in your home. Honor marriage in your home. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. The homes in which marriage is not honored, in which is dishonored, which, which is put down, which is not seen as important, it becomes really, really difficult to shepherd your kids and to say sexual activity is reserved for marriage because they're just going to say, well, what's so great about marriage? They should say, what I've seen in my home is that my mom adores and respects my dad and my dad adores and loves and cherishes and is kind. I want that. And so they should see marriage being honored. Here's a fourth way to distract them from sexual sin. Proactively bring God's word into your home. And this is our text we've been looking at for weeks now. Uh, Chapter six, verses one through four. Bring the instruction of the Lord into your home. Here's a fifth way to shepherd them by distracting them from sexual sin. Teach them to work hard with humble attitudes. Teach them to work hard. You have chapter six, verses five through nine gives commands concerning work. Can I tell you something really practical? That exhausted children who fall into bed tired are spiritually safer. They're safer. That's one of the things we say about our church members here. We want you in church. We want you in seven small groups and, and, and being involved in 15 ministries. We want you so exhausted that you don't even have time to sin. There's no time. Here's another way. Partake of spiritual strength. Partake of spiritual strength. We have, of course, the famous listing of the armor of God, beginning in chapter 6, verse 10, that, that truth and righteousness, which is sound conduct, the gospel, the Bible, prayer, all of these things will strengthen them. And so if you wonder, how do I shepherd my children away from sexual immorality? Just obey the rest of Ephesians. Just do that. I want to give some more culturally specific assignments to you, though. And parents... Can I just tell you that the application of a sermon is not something that I do to take up more time so that your lunch will get cold? This is what you need to do. And as your shepherd, I am, I am telling you, you need to do this. Okay, Titus chapter two tells the shepherds of the church to insist on these things. And this is what I am insisting on. Number one, evaluate all of the media and outside input into your family. What is coming in from what sources? Evaluate all the input into your family and you be courageous enough to make changes. We've had to do that in our family. Every family has to reevaluate on occasion. Evaluate what's coming in and that includes who are your kids hanging around and what are they talking about because if you don't ask, nobody else is going to. Second, evaluate if you have openly spoken in an age-appropriate manner, evaluate if you've openly spoken to your children about sexual sin. If you're avoiding the topic, that's not going to help them. Speak to them about it. Highlight the joys of marriage. Warn about the abuse of God's gift. 
So evaluate all media and outside input. Evaluate if you've openly spoken to your children about sexual sin. Third, have a specific talk or 10 or 100 with your children about godly thinking. Talk about your thoughts. Talk about thoughts that are okay and that are not. And listen, I don't know where we get the idea that we're not supposed to regulate what goes on in our kids' minds, like that that's some sort of free space that they get to do whatever they want. What do you tell them? You tell them that you need to confess to mom and dad if you're having sinful thoughts because we either need to provide shepherding or punishment or both. It is your job to shepherd all of their lives, not just the things you can see. Fourth, pray openly in your family about the purity of the whole family. Pray openly in your family about the purity of the whole family. And by the way, if in a marital relationship, if, if frequent and loving sexual intimacy is not happening the way it ought to be, it becomes much more difficult to honestly talk to your children about purity because you're having issues with it yourself. Pray openly in your family about purity. And finally, this is specific to boys and girls. I've already said this, but I want to repeat it for emphasis. Talk to your boys about respecting women in their thoughts and talk to your girls about presenting themselves with dignity and modesty for their own sake and for the sake of those around them and tell your girls that it is okay to play hard to get because they get to be gotten once. When Jesus died on the cross, sin was defeated. It was done. And Paul rejoiced in this. He, he said in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for what God God has done with the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. This is so victorious in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. There's victory, there's power, there are tools available it is the spirit of God, it is the word of God but the apostle Paul also understood the world we live in and the flesh that we battle. Because in the previous chapter, he says in Romans seven eighteen, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That outside the power of God, I cannot resist sexual sin, not even for a minute. Because your flesh, your leftover sin nature is still a beachhead in which the enemy can can land and take hold and invade your life, invade the life of your children, invade the life of your family. And so what do we do? Well, we fight back. We claw toward Christ-likeness. For some of you, this is an occasional battle. For some of you, this is a daily fight. Uh, There's a phrase that some writers have used to describe the hard-won progress of an infantry battle The phrase was coined in the 1950s by a science fiction writer named Frederick Brown, but it's been used all over the place. And the phrase is that a battle was won foot by bloody foot. And that is the battle for our purity. That is the battle of sanctification, and that precisely describes what we are to be about. The enemy of sin is defeated at the cross, but we progress in our sanctification foot by bloody foot. We tear out the strongholds of the enemy. We take out 
one pillbox at a time. So shepherd your children, and I might add yourself, in conviction, in conversation, and in conduct, because this brings honor to Christ. It lives out walking in a manner, manner worthy of the gospel. It demonstrates the fruit of genuine salvation. Now, I know that when I talk about this subject, I know that almost always there's going to be somebody listening that's doing a self-evaluation and saying, forget about my kids, I'm thinking about me. I'm in darkness. I haven't resisted sexual sin in 10 years, and I can't even remember what, what that was like. I'm being defeated 100% of the time. It may be that you have a soul problem. It may be that you cannot defeat sin because sin has not been defeated. And so I would urge you to examine your own heart. There is no way possible that in this room with this many people that there is not somebody in this room struggling right now. You need to evaluate. You need to say, am I in the camp of somebody who is striving for sanctification foot by bloody foot and asking for the Lord's help? Or am I totally powerless and do I need to come to faith in Christ for real? Because listen, there are plenty of people who A, have sat in church their whole lives, B, struggle with sexual sin, and C, will go to hell because they never came to saving faith. And so you right now might have received the gift of the barometer of the fact that you are totally defeated in this. And perhaps that's an indicator that you need to go to the cross that you need to come to Christ. And that is my hope for you. My hope is if you don't know Christ, this will be your wake-up call. And that if you do know Christ, this will be your wake-up call. And that we would live in a way that honors the Lord and that we would teach our children to do the same. Our Father, we thank you for your directness as a father. You don't just tiptoe through the tulips with us. Sometimes you sit us down you get one inch away from our eyeballs and you just tell it like it is. And this text in Ephesians 5 has done that for us. Lord, in particular, in the context that we've chosen to consider this text today, our children, these precious ones that are all over the place in our building, they're, they're upstairs right now and they're being taught the word of God. But Lord, Satan knows their names. And Satan has his eyes on them and he would, he would take them down. He would take them down the path of sexual sin and immorality such that they have no desire for Christ, no desire for the cross, such that their shame makes them run from forgiveness instead of run towards it. And so, Lord, we pray for their protection. We pray for the parents of every child here that they would adequately, adequately shepherd their children, that they would teach them the glories of human marriage and the deadly consequences of unchecked sexual immorality. Because, Lord, ultimately that's just one area in which we desire to be holy. We want to be holy in our conduct, in our thoughts, in our speech, in every area of life. And so we come humbly now asking you to apply this word to our hearts, not just in the area of purity, but in the area of any sin that easily besets us. We desire Christ-likeness, and I pray for each person here, I pray for every man and woman, that this day they would determine by the power of the Spirit that dwells in them to crucify the flesh and to be more like Christ this day and to influence others to do the same. We pray these things so that we might honor our pure, our risen, our holy, our spotless, our perfect Lamb of God. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.